Today's guest is Banning Garrett, joining us from Washington, D.C. He is faculty at Singularity University and consultant to the World Bank and the United Nations. Garrett has written for two dozen publications on a wide range of other issues as well, including U.S.-China relations, U.S.-China cooperation on climate change, energy, globalization, and its strategic impact, arms control, and nuclear strategy. Previously, Garrett was director of the Atlantic Council's Asia program and founding director of the Council's Strategic Foresight Initiative and, beginning in 2006, established and led the Council's cooperation with the National Intelligence Council and its production of unclassified, quadrennial global trends assessments, including Global Trends 2030 Alternative Worlds, in 2012. He created and led the Council's program on the implications of emerging technologies and its Urban World 2030 program. In addition, Garrett created and directed the Council's U.S.-China Joint Assessment of Long-Term Global Trends project and was co-author of the project's 2012 report, China-U.S. Cooperation, Key to the Global Future. Enjoy the podcast and please subscribe and share. What political science ought to be abolished, I think, is a disappointed. When I was at When I was at Stanford, I was in the first interdisciplinary program in the university, Um, and my mentor was a political theorist who was wonderful, political philosophy, political theory, and but I I thought political science was such a waste that I wouldn't didn't want to take my major in it, so I majored in this honors program. (laughs) I was the only one to graduate in the history of social thought and institutions, but I I will say though this is one thing that relates to to all to my work ever since and maybe to to yours too is that. What we did in this honors program was we focused on a problem or subject for the junior year, you know, seminar. And the problem, my year, the relationship between self and society. But we approached it by focusing on the problem. Then we bring to bear everything from sociology and biology to novels to foreign policy to, you know, whatever, whatever discipline and ideas would help you understand the problem rather than focusing on the disciplines. And, you know, as you know, you go to graduate school and they want you to learn the discipline and the methodology and whether you actually understand the world better. So what? You know, that's not it's collateral damage. You know, (laughs) it's all about, you know, taking the professor's methodology and applying it to make the professor famous or something. I I don't know. But I mean, I've always felt it focus on the the problem or what you're trying to understand. And there are all kinds of approaches and, and people too from different disciplines to try to help understand the problem and solve the problem. Um, and so anyway, that's always, that, that was the, the great result from my undergraduate education was the one thing worthwhile or the most worthwhile thing I got out of it. Okay, so first question we ask our guests is what do you wanna be asked? And you already sent me yours, so I'll straight up ask you, what are the big long-term challenges we as humanity face? What are alternative futures that might result from the impact of these challenges on humans and human impact on the way the challenges unfold? So how many days do we have to talk about this? <laughs> I mean, I, I posed the question and it's, it's a big question and it's the things I like to think about and hopefully uh, you know, move the ball forward a little bit. But I mean, I've looked at, I worked with the National Intelligence Council uh, for well, started in 2006. I was at the Atlantic Council and we took the NIC around the world to get global input for these unclassified global trends reports they put out every four years after the U.S. presidential election. And they get translated into many languages and are taken seriously around the world. And they're pretty interesting. And it allowed me to have a chance to just go to some 20 countries, um, you know, several, many times, maybe about 15 trips we took between 2006 and to 2012 on different reports. 
but it, it really sensitized me to look at these long-term trends and try to uh, understand the context as we look forward. What's the, what's, what are we going to be facing? I mean, some of them are very obvious, but the, the, you know, how they play out is going to be very critical and, and maybe we'd underplay the potential impact. And I'm thinking here uh, is uh, certainly the most uh, talked about issue right now has been climate change and looking at, at the uh, potential impact of climate change around the world. And it's interesting to compare it with the pandemic. Um, and the pandemic, which my sister Lori Garrett wrote the book, The Coming Plague in 94, and uh, kind of warned us. Uh, and of course, the warnings were never taken seriously enough, although a lot of planning was done in the US government and that was ignored by the Trump administration. Nevertheless, the pandemic is interesting because I, I would say it's the first truly global crisis. That is virtually every person on the planet was affected by it, is still being affected by it. And it happened all at pretty much the same time. And here we have, uh, it, it, you know, show the fragility of our own societies, certainly our healthcare systems, our international trade. It's, it's really had a spotlight on how fragile human society can be. I guess you can say the flip side is we've been resilient as well. But we haven't, and I think this is one of the subjects we need to talk about more, we haven't really had a, a truly global response. That is to say where everybody sort of says, we're all in the same boat, let's do everything we can to, to see all of us get through this. We all get vaccinated or initially tested, whatever. Um, that hasn't happened. We've had the, the most of a global response has been from the scientists trying to work together wherever they are to come up with uh, the vaccines, but also the, the uh, sequencing and all the things that led to that. Uh, but we haven't had the kind of uh, global response we really need. And even the United States, of course, under Trump was America first, very, very uh, nationalist and you know, sort of gated community, throw up the walls and keep people out. And what happens to others doesn't really matter to you. And the Biden administration, I think, is certainly trying to reverse that and doing pretty well. But still, we have vaccine nationalism. We see, you know, real differences in how people uh, have been uh, able to, to cope with this and different government responses. So if you think about that and, you know, in the face of a pandemic and a pandemic is not part of a I wouldn't call it the, the only part of it that's a global trend would be the zoonotic origin of pathogens, that is to say that's human encroachment on the natural environment and uh, the, the uh, diseases that may have an origin in a, a bat or a ferret that then uh, make contact uh, eventually with humans and spread the disease to humans, which wouldn't have happened if we weren't tearing up their habitats and all. But more, more generally, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's not the same as, um, as climate change. It's not, not a trend we see happening. A pandemic can happen anytime or maybe not for a long time. It, it's uh, one of those uh, wild cards that can get you at any moment, but never like, a, for example, nuclear war would be a, uh, or use of nuclear weapons would be some, not a trend, it would be a wild card. It might happen, may never happen. Um, you, you, hopefully it will never happen. And we've been pretty good since 1945 uh, on the question of use of nuclear weapons. So, uh, but there's trends like climate change we can see is obviously getting worse and worse and we're doing by basically nothing, or certainly nothing that's uh, turned the trend away from adding more and more uh, CO2 to the environment, uh, to the atmosphere. So it's a trend. Uh, it's going to happen. It's already having a huge impact. It's going to get a lot worse. We know it's coming. Um, can we have a global response to it? Well, we have 
the half empty and half full response. We have the uh, climate Paris agreement. Uh, we've had you know efforts to, and, and we'll see more with Glasgow uh, to pull together the, the world and set out uh, standards and take actions. But it's certainly not been, uh, we're all in the same boat uh, kind of global response that's, that's needed by any means. And the impacts will be differential and, and, and separated in time. There'll be forest fires in Australia and, and California, as we've seen, there'll be extreme weather events, sea level rise, there'll be uh, droughts and, and, and all this. So it won't be a uniform conflict, uh, impact. It'll have different impacts in different places at different times. And so trying to organize the world to take it all as a global challenge and work together um, is even gonna be more difficult now, the other side of that, of course, is the economic opportunity. If you can make money going green, uh, which is, of course, the philosophy of the Biden administration and a lot of other people, then maybe you can really set in motion the kinds of changes that will take place. So anyway, climate change is a huge trend. And of course, we see the biodiversity loss, the sixth mass extinction, all these issues I'm sure you have focused on and are very well aware of. And then the other areas, for example, in demographics, we, we're going to add apparently about 2 billion more people to the planet. We're closing in on eight, so we'll get to nine and a half or 10 billion probably by the middle of the century. Um, and it will be virtually all of that, unless something changes dramatically, will be in cities and the, the, all the net gain will be in cities in the developing world. And probably half of that gain at least will be in Africa that's not very urbanized yet. Uh, so how do you do that? I mean, just think of the challenges, the cities right now, some of them, I've been in places like Lagos, um, and they're pretty frightening places. I mean, how are we going to manage that? Adding another 2 billion people, it's 70 million people a year or something like that added to cities. And this is a huge challenge. And of course, at the same time, we have the aging of the population. And China, for the first time, according to the Financial Times today, is going to report that their population is declining. Um, uh, and uh, the, dom the dem demographers, such in the book um, Empty Planet, I think it's called, really uh, some demographers in China predict that they could be down to 700 million by the end of the century. In other words, half the population. And that, you know, what happens to the working population, then you have aging population, you have all these various things are happening demographically that are going to be hugely challenging, not to mention the amount of resources that are going to be required to feed and, and, and provide water, housing, and energy for another 2 billion people. So this is another big challenge, right? So, you know, you can kind of go down the list and see that uh, uh, we have these, these huge challenges in the environment, huge challenges with re resources, with clean water, with obviously enough food to be produced, uh, and the distribution of that food to the people who need it. Not, uh, and uh, then, then on top of that, of course, breeds conflict. Um, from all kinds of, uh, you know, directions, first of all, from climate change. And you see this in Africa where you have drought and famine and then migration and then conflict and then migration to, to Europe, but leading to a backlash in Europe. I mean, it, it just it sets off all kinds of uh, challenges. There are going to be resource challenges. Um, and, of course, technology change has been a huge part of what we've all experienced and the digital age, uh, both for, for, for good and for not so good, and uh, social media and other ways. So we have, and, it, and, and the technological change is accelerating and what its impact will be and how it will be used. This is, this is another huge area. So and then the volatile econ economy, I tend to think that we'll move um, 
you know, towards more and more production of uh, food, energy, and even manufactured goods closer to where they're consumed, which will have a big impact on global supply chains and global trade. Uh, we may have peak peak globalization uh, in terms of movement of, of things, of physical stuff around the world, not of uh, data. Uh, so we have a whole complex set of factors going on, of which I've mentioned just a few. And at the same time, we see under the um, pandemic, it sort of brought, as I said, kind of uh, brought into relief the, the weaknesses of our own governance and huge new demands on governments that weren't really being able to beat the demands before that. And uh, so you have, and some governments doing better than others, but you know, even in the United States, we failed so miserably at the beginning of this, partly, primarily, I think, for political mismanagement at the top. But you know, our public health system was not up to what it should be. In the last several decades, we've moved more from uh, public health to private medicine, where the focus is on individual medicine and getting private medicine for people rather than building robust public health systems, uh, which would uh, handle things like a pandemic or a bioterrorist attack or a massive hurricane or all the other kinds of uh, uh, global challenges or global uh, catastrophes that could happen that we are really not prepared for. So uh, it is stress on government and then government resources with all the spending required to keep people afloat during the, the shutdown of the last year or so. Uh, you know, they, the governments are stretched thin in terms of their competence, their effectiveness, and their resources. So this is another great uh, challenge ahead. So you put all those together and you kind of see that as the Global Trends 2040 report by the National Intelligence Council is a pretty grim future. And they outline several scenarios of how it could go. So I'm, not, I'm a optimist, not a pessimist. And so I think there are ways out of this. I think humans can be very inventive and creative and resilient and find ways to move forward. But I think if we don't start with a kind of clear-headed view of the challenges we face, how difficult it's going to be, then it's going to be just a kind of la-la land, uh, utopian visions that are disconnected from, from where we are now to how we get there. Uh, I remember the last uh, European uh, security uh, strategy uh, just after uh, the war in Iraq, it was pretty um, optimistic and pretty ambitious. Then uh, the latest one, it, it's like the world has changed within the 12 or 10 years. It's, it's, it's a completely different picture. And I always ask myself, someone has to be responsible for the deteriorating state of affairs, not someone in particular, but it's not like, you know, it's not like some aliens or God or anything, is, <laughs> you know, yes, sort right. of is imposing on us these problems. We do it ourselves and it only took 10 years to go from a complete optimism to a complete negativism. And uh, I'm, I keep wondering about it. But that is uh, an interesting point. Yeah. Mike, I'll, I'll, I'll just comment on that because I think it's very hard to, to jump out of the historical moment you're in and see where you, you could be in 10 years and five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, I think that's hard. I mean, think back in the United States, you know, in, in January 2009, I was one of two million people out on the National Mall uh, for the inauguration of Barack Obama, uh, which seemed like a very hopeful moment, a very positive moment that we were really going to move forward on a whole lot of fronts. And it's only, you know, eight years later, we get Donald Trump. And all of a sudden, it looks like our democracy is, itself is at stake. 
and uh, you know, it's a, a dictator wannabe uh, who's taken power, and all kinds of really terrible things are happening. We had the insurrection at the Capitol that was spurred on by the president. Uh, so, wow, are we on? You know, are we on the brink of fascism and a, and a, a you know a dark period for you know the foreseeable future. Um, and I, I so I say that because I think that this I understand these bleak forecasts and like the, the National Intelligence Council one is the bleakest one that they've done. Um, <clears throat> but we also have to see we are in a historical period and it's a little hard to get a perspective beyond it. You know, even Karl Marx said, you know, he didn't know what socialism would actually look like because he's in a capitalist era. You don't know what the next era is going to be like. So I think we just have to be a little cautious. The European strategists have to be a little cautious and see that, you know, that, that we are in a certain period. And I, but I think it's a it's a pivotal period. We have choices to make and it could get much worse, but it could get much better. And, you know, the, you know there are different roads to be taken, so to speak, um, on, on a whole range of issues. And you have to see what I think your point was that it's us humans doing it, right? I mean, we're making the future. I mean, it doesn't yeah. happen. It's not some alien force that comes down, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, although I would say we might benefit from Independence Day, right? Remember the movie? <laughs> yeah. And the aliens actually brought the world together by threatening to destroy all of us. And if, if, if we were to, to make that metaphor be climate change so that, you know, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us, the old Pogo problem, um, you know, and, and we have to come together to to defeat this enemy, which is what we've done to ourselves over the last, especially a couple hundred years, uh, then it would be a uniting factor. Uh, but I, you know, it, it, it's, it demands a real change of, of, of direction on, on so many fronts if we want to do what we possibly can do. I mean, it, you know, the, the technology is there or could be there. We can foresee what the technology needs to be and we could put the money into research and development and, and then scale it to solve problems, including potentially uh, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, but, uh, you know, in many other areas. And so it could be done, but we're not putting the resources into it. And we have tremendous internal conflicts and people who, uh, nationalism and populism, that it, it, it's hampering. And, and look at this country here, we have 40% of the population that doesn't think President Biden was legitimately elected. You know, I mean, I mean the, the big lie still works. And uh, so, you know, we have to overcome it, but it doesn't mean it couldn't be done, is that we have to throw our hands up and just, well, you know, the Eeyore problem. Well, I'm sorry, it's just going to rain. Nothing I can do about it. <laughs> it seems to me that, that what you said is not as widely shared. It's, the language is sort of that there are those challenges and we have to deal with it, but the challenges are we. <laughs> it's, it's, it's us. But anyway, and, and also one more point, I was, I was really astonished when I found out that there is a, a, a serious group of good researchers that, that say that the only way uh, the humankind can unite, uh, can unite is if an asteroid uh, would be to, uh, <laughs> to hit us. And there are projects that, that are coalescing around that. So the Independence Day metaphor is definitely very close to what's happening. The but, by that, the way, the Independence Day, you know, we, we use the virus to defeat the enemy. Ironically, if you compare it to the oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. That's true. <laughs> and then and I love the scene at the toward the end where the general well, they general they figure out finally how to bring down the alien ships, and the general gets tells these guys to get on Morse code and send the word around the world as to how to bring them down. And everybody <laughs> adopts the same approach to defeating the enemy. You know, I mean, 
there's a lot in that that uh, <laughs> that movie that really is uh, prescient in a sense, you know, uh, and should be, un, you know, taken as a metaphor. Uh, where I was aiming for uh, previously is that that you've been you've been part of uh, creating the the global trends uh, for and with the the uh, national intelligence community. Do you think that they they met these reports managed to move things in the right direction? Well, I, it's a little hard to know. Um, I know with the Global Trends 2025 report finished in, in 20, uh, 2008, that the, the author of the report, the main author, uh, Matt Burroughs, and the head of the National Intelligence Council at the time, Tom Finger, uh, went to Chicago to meet with Barack Obama uh, just after he had been elected and to brief him on the results of the report. And this was typical of what they tried to do Uh, the report was initially basically seen as uh, based for the uh, the U.S. government, all the different branches for the military intelligence community, you know, throughout the government as a way of looking at the future. And they always produced them uh, to be released, be finished and released after the presidential election every four years. Um, first of all, it would be nonpartisan because you wouldn't know who was going to be elected. And secondly, and more importantly, it would be a document available to kind of help the new administration as it's coming to power and developing its own foreign policy and defense strategy uh, to have a, a kind of strategic look at the, the environment that they're going to operate in. And so it was widely used, I think, in the U.S. government. And I must say it was used by, apparently by governments all over the world. And I know in China that was translated within a month every time it'd be translated. And we did a joint project on global trends with the Chinese back in uh, 2012, 2011 through, it was published in 2013, uh, because I, we actually, was we went around the world, we tried to encourage people to do their own global trends reports and put together a community. I, my dream had been personally to put together a global, global trends community. And uh, because we went to, you know, Russia, China, India, uh, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, you know, South Africa, Botswana, Nigeria, India, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Egypt. And we wanted people, my idea is if you had a global, global trends community, it could be function something like the IPCC. That is to say, if you've got a group of people coming from all these countries, it wasn't just a bunch of Americans and Europeans saying, look, these are the really big challenges we face and we got to work together to, to deal with these. If we don't, we're going to face real extreme uh, uh, circumstances that we don't want to have to face as, as the IPCC has tried to warn with climate change. And I thought this would be, you know, if it were inter truly international, it'd have a lot of credibility with policymakers and the publics. Uh, if they, you know, people in, in Russia and China and India and Brazil, as well as Americans and And checks came out and said, you know, here's the situation we face. But unfortunately, I couldn't get it. I know the funding problem. I never got any funding for it and I never, never went anywhere. I, I still think it would be a great idea to have that kind of a, a global community that takes a look at these things and issues reports to try to, to, to bring the urgency to a whole set of issues uh, beyond just climate change. But although a, a climate now has broadened into the Um, biodiversity and the sixth mass extinction and a lot of other and health. So it, in a sense, that's becoming a kind of global community to, to, to alert policymakers and point to, we have to change course. The trajectory we're on as a human civilization isn't going to work. We have to find a better, a better trajectory.
let me let me move to uh, on to China if you, if you don't mind you. I've been there more than 60 times if, if I read that, if I read that correctly. Uh, one of the big big topics obviously globally is the nascent nascent um, technology uh, competition sort of bipolar competition between the United States and China. Uh, now there, there are two questions that I would like to uh, to pose in this regard and one is, is it realistic to expect that, that some sort of non-zero game in in the technology competition could be uh, could be viable? The second question, which actually should be the first question, is whether you think that this sort of competition is actually taking place. The United States gets very worried about maintaining its its uh, position in the world. That's certainly true. Uh, and and I, but it's also true, China, especially under Xi Jinping, since 2012, really, 2013, has moved in, a, I think, a hyper-nationalist direction. It's moved into kind of efforts to really almost create a totalitarianism on, on technological steroids um, for control internally and suppression of dissent. And we see the things that have been going on in, with the Uyghurs and now with Hong Kong, and the stepped up pressure on Taiwan. And all this you know, reverberates back into the US uh, politically. And there's a sense then that with, of course, the China made in, made in China 2025, we're gonna be dominant you know, in AI and robotics and quantum computing and all these things, you know, that all the red flags went up in, in, in Washington and, and really broader foreign policy community in, in uh, the United States. So we're in this, again, we're in like this little period where everything looks like it's moving to more and more confrontation and bifurcation of the world and to technological, you know, uh, world systems. I don't think we're going to get go that far. I think there are certain areas where there's realistic concern about, I mean, the whole thing about Huawei, for example, I've heard concerns about Huawei for a very long time from people in the U.S. government who were in a position to know there was a problem. So there are going to be places like that, that it's it, companies in certain areas of, of competition or, you know, that one's really about security, about the ability to get a backdoor into systems, uh, something that everybody's trying to do to everybody else, as we see with solar winds and uh, efforts by the Chinese to hack uh, everything from IP to U.S. government websites. Um, so this is going on, the cyber, you know, uh, uh, warfare, so to speak, or cyber uh, competition or espionage and, and stealing uh, industrial secrets. Uh, and of course, that's always gone on, you know, but now it's just on, on steroids again, because technology makes it a lot, a lot easier. Uh, you can steal things from 12,000 miles away. Uh, you don't have to have people in the room. So, you know, it's a very different situation, but I think, um, you know, we're extremely interdependent uh, in our economies. Now, there's efforts to reduce supply chain vulnerabilities and, and reliance on China. China wants to keep business, foreign business in China and wants to make it dependent on China so that gives them more leverage uh, for supply chain. So there's all these little games going on and they probably will. But my concern has been with the, what I've seen in the U.S. on China policy is, is What's the strategy? Where, where are we trying to go? What kind of relationship do we want to have with China uh, and the world <laughs> over the, you know, the next 10, 15, 20 years? And how is our strategy helping us to get there? 
Do we want to have a, just an ever never ending spiral of arms competition, technology uh, competition that's that's uh, strategic and threatening rather than just everybody's trying to make a better widget, uh, that kind of competition. Uh, what, what, where are we trying to go? Where are the Chinese trying to go? Uh, this is a this bigger picture, I think, is what you kind of have to start with and then see, well, where do you, where do you want it to go? I mean, I think that if you look at the challenges, we start again with the problem. We got this thing called climate change. It's a pretty big problem. And it's going to take a lot of technology and resources and policy initiatives to solve it. Well, you, you aren't going to solve it alone in no country. Um, I did this global trends joint assessment with the Chinese back in 2012, 2013, a very high level um, groups on both sides. The former, it was in, the report was endorsed by the former foreign minister, Li Jiaoxin and, and, and uh, Tom Joshuan, and uh, on our side, Brent Scowcroft and uh, Jim Jones and Steve Hadley, old been national security advisors to the president, all endorsed the report, so it was a big deal. And, but the whole point of it was that there's these big challenges like climate change, that if the U.S. and China don't cooperate, there is not going to be meaningful international cooperation. We're just too big of an impact, the footprint of both countries. So this should be the strategic framework of the U.S.-China relationship, and then we to, to coordinate and cooperate, and then we you know fight over smaller issues. We have our little struggles and our competition and and all that. Now, that was the idea, and it was endorsed at a very high level on both sides, as I said back in 2013. But it, neither side went forward. We wanted to have an advisory committee that would be a strategic advisory committee of luminaries that you know, retired, very senior uh, officials and CEOs and that sort of thing. And that somehow just didn't happen. And it would have been helpful because it would have been some guidance at the top. Uh, so getting a perspective that, hey, we're in this common, uh, we, we live on the same planet and we've got to figure out how to make this planet you know, healthy and survive and can't just be in, in competition and threatening each other. Uh, that was the idea, and I still think it's valid. I, and I believe that we have, a, let's call it formats. We still have mutual assured nuclear destruction is still still there. That, that's, and I would argue that's why we're never going to fight a war with China, uh, because you don't know where it will go. We didn't fire BB guns at the Soviet Union because we feared that if you, you you're losing, you escalate, and if you escalate, where's the end of it? And how do you prevent? the possibility of, of escalating to nuclear conflict. And I think the same thing is true between the US and China. If you recall, we had the EP3 incident in 2001 when a Chinese fighter trying to harass an American spy plane uh, off of uh, the coast of China uh, inadvertently crashed into it, uh, killing the pilot of the, spy, of the uh, fighter and forcing the American plane down on Hainan Island. It led to a uh, a real, you know, debacle, but immediate reaction was, let's talk. We're not going to escalate this to a war. Let's talk. And I think that it's a recognition that you, you, you just can't take the risk of getting into a, a shooting war between two nuclear powers because you can't guarantee it won't escalate to nuclear conflict. And if it does that, then that's game over for both countries and probably the world. So, I think mutual assured destruction is still alive. Deterrence still works. I think you get you know people talking in a very different direction, and I could elaborate on that because that that debate is going on here in the United States about whether we can head it to war with China. Then I would say you have mutual assured cyber destruction. That is to say that we're all dependent on the internet, and if you just think for 
you know, about 30 seconds about what happens if the internet just went down, gone. There goes your banking system. There goes your water, your grid, your, your agricultural delivery of food, your bank account. Everything's gone. We're, we're in worse shape than we were in the Middle Ages because 7.8 billion people can all go to the country and grow their own food. Um, we are totally dependent as a global civilization and every single, almost every community on the planet on the internet surviving. So we have a, a common interest with every power, the Russians who want to play games and with it and the Chinese, Americans, everybody and make it, maintaining the viability of the internet as an international linkage system of communication. It's just like we do with phones, but much more importantly. So we have some, some, uh, interest in all those four realms to make sure the system continues to work, that the infrastructure is there. We can have little, you know, we can still use the internet to spy on each other and do other nasty things, but we better make sure the internet itself it survives. Otherwise we're, we're doomed and we can play games with building up nuclear weapons and arms control, but we really don't want to use them because we don't know where that ends, but it's likely to end in a very bad place. And I mean, I, you know, the same thing with the, climate, et cetera. So I, I think we need to figure out how do you put that kind of common interest as the, the motivating factor internationally with how we behave and, and sort of try to get control of all our competition. You go back to the technology. We need all hands on deck for climate change, right? We need all the scientific uh, acumen and research and uh, focus we can on all the aspects of climate change and how to deal with it and building technology. And American and Chinese scientists should be cooperating on this. They should be cooperating on the pandemic. They should be cooperating on a whole many, many areas of science and technology that were beneficial to the to, to survival of the human species. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, there aren't some areas where you, you're not going to want to be engaged with each other, like I said, on uh, what we have on certain areas of uh, uh, you know, with, with Huawei and, and communications technology that could be used for subversion or bringing down each other's grids and that sort of thing. Those are real issues and they've got to be solved. But the bigger picture, I think, still needs to be out there that we, we need to you know, harness technology to benefit all humans on the planet. And playing these games between the U.S. and China, if it leads to more and more, uh, you know, uh, race to the bottom, I mean, I'm suffering because I'm not cooperating. My, my, you know, I'm not as innovative. My, my economy's not growing. But you're suffering more. You know, that kind of uh, zero-sum view of the world, which Donald Trump held, uh, I think is extremely dangerous to all of us. So the technology thing, I think, has to be wrapped into this bigger picture of where are we trying to go with China, and where's China trying to go with us? And and the Chinese are under this, I think, very mistaken view that the U.S. is in decline. And a very good piece by Michael uh, by Martin Wolf today in the Financial Times saying maybe not, and maybe the Chinese are, you know, I think that they, they there's a lot of hubris now in China that is misguided. Uh, two questions. One is is centered a bit about around China, and that is to do with the whole regulation because this is the biggest topic right now in Europe in terms of technology is. Uh, Europe's approach to technology is regulation first um, in a sort of attempt to, I think one of the goals is to, since, since there's no way that we can, well, there is, but we're not really getting close to being part of the AI race. But what we can be is like global leaders in AI governance. And I think that's sort of the avenue yeah. which Europe feels comfortable in pursuing. And it's not, a, it's not a bad avenue. It's just that it shouldn't be the only one. But in terms of China, their, their new 
their new eye opening of, of, of approaching regulation, but completely different, um, completely different uh, reasons for doing so. In Europe, obviously, the, the priority is uh, the member states being happy with it and the citizens being feeling trust towards technology and, and using data. And in China, it seems like they're shooting themselves a little bit in the foot with, with regulating. Um, so that's one sort of avenue. The other one is nothing to do with China, but um, to do with climate change and technology. So we've already done two podcasts with um, experts on, on climate change that deal with using technology to fight climate change. But neither of them so far, I couldn't really get in technology that can actually be used right now. So they talk about developing technology and how this is going to help, you know, different aspects of climate change, but they didn't talk about technology that can be used right away, that can prevent the worst wave of climate change. Do you look at this aspect of it, like techno like how technology can help climate change right now and not in the future? I mean, there's so much that we know what to do now and it's just doing it, right? And, and uh, I mean, just look at regenerative agriculture. You know, look at uh, uh, capping uh, the methane leaks. Uh, there's, and apparently methane is really a huge contributor. And if you could uh, do some very simple things to prevent leaks of methane, uh, you would have a big impact on warming right there. I mean, that's on top of, of course, solar energy and wind and all that. But there's a lot that can be done, I think. I, 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 one of my good friends, I mean, dear friend, uh, is uh, Bill Colglazer, who was the, he was head of the National Academy, executive director of the National Academy of Sciences for like 15 years, and then the science and technology advisor to the Secretary of State under Obama, and uh, just a dear friend and, and really knows, he's a physicist, he worked with uh, uh, Richard Feynman, um, and in any case, but he would, he would argue that, you know, all the science and technology is not there yet that we need. Uh, there's, you know, we can see what we need to develop. We don't haven't put the R&D and scaling into it yet, but that there's a huge amount that we already know uh, we can do. And of course, there's obvious things, shut down coal plants, right? I mean, that doesn't take technology. That, that's just shutting them down and you know, building more solar, wind or whatever. Um, so I, I would agree with you that, that that kind of focus only on the, on the future technology is, uh, you know, that's the last mile problem, right? I mean, once we start really limiting uh, growth of emissions and then we start stopping, uh, you know, bringing down emissions of, can you suck some of that carbon out of there? And if, if, you know, my friend Kim Stanley Robinson wrote this wonderful new book, I think it's really an important book. It was on Obama's top 20 list, the ministry for the future. And one of the things in that by the 2050, we're, we're doing things to actually reduce carbon and getting back towards 350. Uh, parts per million um, of carbon. So I think, yes, as you look out, we need more technology and, and scientific developments. Uh, the people that I know uh, doing quantum computing would say that quantum computers could help us solve the problem of, of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere because it's a very complex problem, apparently, in terms of uh, molecules and and, and, and other aspects of it. Uh, so yeah, we could do more, but, but I, we have a lot here now. We know what to do and how to do it. So yeah. you know, that, that's my answer to that. Long, what, what about your opinion on, on tech regulation globally? Well, I think that, that if you're particularly, it depends on the kind of regulations. If you mean to prevent misuse of technology, is that what you're talking about? Like AI well, it, misuse uh, or CRISPR or? 
I think that that's a good question po posed toward the people trying to do regulation. Like, what are you actually talking about? Because just um, yeah. just last week, the European Union came out with their new policies towards AI. Oh, it was basically AI in Europe uh, and their new regulations. And they most of the science, most of the technology experts out there commenting on the the new published regulation said that it's it's too vague. The, the parts of technology that the EU, the European Commission mentioned where they want to definitely ban the use of AI, for example, for uh, facial recognition in uh, security um, scenarios, there's a bunch of them. And basically the tech experts say there's no way you'd be able to distinguish whether this is a scenario where they can't use AI and this is a scenario where they can because it's such a complex technology. It's something that even if they had um, the top AI experts forming the strategy with them, it's just too difficult to distinguish. So it really matters what exactly which aspect we're talking about. But generally, what I mean, and what is probably the most popular and easier aspect of talking about this is the American approach to AI is very, very much business focused, and very much, um, you know, trial and error risk, risk, uh, they're, they're open to risks. The Chinese one is very much focused on like the national interest and there, there's no focus on the individual. While in Europe, it's basically regulation first and then we can pursue development and there's a big uh, focus on the individual. So generally there's you know a debate whether one or the other may be the better approach. What has been said in Europe uh, by people that do AI research is that it's important to have the regulation and Europe is on a good path of doing that, but there needs to be more risk taking, there needs to be better funding and there needs to be uh, a better strategy of keeping talent in Europe and, um, and, and more research into AI without the, the infringement of, of complete regulation. Well, I, I would side with those people. I think, you know, there was a, a Silomar conference on AI in January, I think 2017 about 250 of the leading AI experts from around the world got together to talk about what are the principles that should guide AI research and, and deployment. And they came up with a list of, I don't know, 23 principles or something like that. And I thought that was a pretty good approach because this wasn't governments. This was, you know, the, the AI researchers itself. You name an AI researcher that you know about, uh, and that person was there. <laughs> Everybody was there. And it was it was a pretty good idea. And if you look back, there was the Silomar Conference on Recombinant DNA back in 1975, which voluntarily set out guidelines of how DNA could be used or couldn't be used. What, what do we want to prevent being done that we think is harmful to humans and to society? And then in, in 2015, I was at a conference put on by the National Academy of Sciences, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, and the Royal Society on gene editing. And, and Jennifer, I met Jennifer Dowda there, who uh, of course got the Nobel Prize for, for discovering or developing CRISPR along with Carpentier. And in fact, she was interviewed by my sister yesterday on the Nobel Prize set of uh, summit that's been going on with the National Academy of Sciences that's going on today. She was, she and Tony Fauci and Doherty from Nobel Prize winner from Australia who discovered T cells and what they do. Any case, um, so, but they, this conference was really facing the problem of what, what we want to do and not do with, with gene editing, you want germline editing, that kind of thing. So they ended up uh, together putting, coming up with these guidelines on gene editing that were uh, released, I think in March of 2016 or something like that. Um, but they, they did it collectively and the Chinese were involved. 
And uh, it was an effort to, you know, get the scientists together and, and, and confront what the real dangers were with uh, gene editing and the guidelines for developing it and how to, you know, we're in human gene editing, what do we want to do or not do? Um, so I go back and say with AI, I think it's a similar thing that these guidelines set out in the SOMAR were a start in terms of, of uh, governing the, the development, the research and development of AI. Um, and so maybe that's a starting point. But the other point is make is that we use AI as if it's a thing, um, as if there's this, you can go buy an AI, you know, and an, all AI is equal. It's just, you know, potentially it's, it's uh, uh, you know, gonna dominate the world, it's Terminator or whatever. Uh, AI is just software, right? And and it's used everywhere. Siri, uh, you know, Google OK. I mean, there's using AI and everything. Pretty, you know, at some point we won't even talk about AI as a, as a thing. Like we don't really talk about the internet. We talk about social media. We talk about, you know, web pages. We don't talk about the, the internet because everything's different. And AI is going to be used in all kinds of uh, very, very benign ways. And already But ultimately is. the problem I mean, is- we're, we're speaking- Yeah, really, it's everywhere. It's AI. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, so when you say AI, what are you talking about? You know, it's it, and I think politicians don't tend to understand that. You know, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot around narrative and 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 basically the ne the necessity to bring AI back to back to the ground without you know using too much science fiction language and making making it realistic. And you're just saying that the problem is how people use it. Yeah, you know, and we have to to govern that. I mean, there's certain things you should not be doing with AI, right? Just like with gene editing. Uh, it, things that could be done, but shouldn't be done. Yeah. And, and not necessarily development. I mean, like autonomous weapons, how much do we want to have, you know, an AI deciding when to, to kill people? Um, and you know, also I mean, accepting, as we said before, with the, with the geopolitics and generally that, you know, we're, people are the ones making all these decisions and strategies, just like people are the ones creating the AI and designing it. So it's not like AIs happen to us and we need to fear it. It's like, no, 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 we're designing it. We can create however we want it to be. That's exactly right. Let's keep the human agent there. Exactly, and yeah. Stuart Russell is one of the most famous AI experts who I, we interviewed in, in, in Berkeley and he has written a book, but he was very critical of how autonomous weapons use. But his point is we just, you know, AI is, is something that's a tool for humans. We're not tools for AI, you know? We have to keep the humans yeah. in charge and we have to develop it for our purposes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. And until then, have a great day.